Episode 9 of This Is Not A Rebuild, a podcast about a team that is in a rebuild. No, rebuild's too nice a word, because that implies that they know what they're doing at all. (laughs) I'm Matt Trueblood. I'm here tonight with just two of the three usual co-hosts. Todd Trueblood's here. I am here. And so is Tom Nurse. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? (laughs) And we are just trying to make the very best of a bad situation uh, because that's where the Cubs find themselves at this particular moment. Uh, It's Wednesday, December 14th. It's just past 9 p.m. Central. And if by the time you hear this, the Cubs have signed Dansby Swanson, it changes the tenor of things a bit. (laughs) Please disregard. (laughs) I don't even know if you should disregard. And, And a backhanded shout out to our friend and cohort, uh, DJ Fox, who apparently is in the hospital uh, about uh, how badly he feels about this whole uh, the Carlos affairs. Affair. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he's not in the hospital. He's not. He's just he's blowing us off. He's apoplectic about this whole thing. I mean, I've um, I've seen curse words before, but not in that string. Yeah, I think he I think he invented an entire new one somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the boy's not happy. And nor should he be. I mean, look, I I have said my piece about why Carlos Correa was the right person for the Cubs to do everything for uh this winter. And I'm going to be out on that limb and if I'm wrong about it, I'm wrong about it. At this point, I'd be happy to be wrong about it because I think they do have a good chance at landing Dansby Swanson. There are things to like about Cooter's boy. Uh, <laughs> it, it's There's more, I think, to him than even necessarily meets the eye, and we can dig into that more if he does end up becoming a Cub. But right here in this moment, you can't just do anything but look around and see a team lost in the doldrums, directionless, rudderless, helmed by an ineffectual dork who can't seem to loosen the purse strings of some feckless penny pinchers who have taken over the entire operation. And until they make a major, major acquisition, no more, you know, we're not going to give half credit for Jameson Tyones or Cody Bellinger's as more important things, higher things up on the checklist, Uh, slip right by them until they do something to fundamentally change that perception that's the correct objective reality Um, it's it's a bleak time yeah i mean it's uh i don't know how i don't think we could say it any better than that feckless what was that feckless and who's the dork i i think i had jed as an ineffectual dork (laughs) there it is as feckless penny pinchers okay yes I yeah. think that says it, and but the thing is, it's it's. I mean, they're just following the history of the Cubs. The Cubs have always done this, where they say, "Boy, we're going to be competitive. Uh, we're going to really go out there and 
be competitive. And okay, fine. And it's our own damn fault for buying tickets and buying hats and shirts. And they don't need to, to put winning first. Uh, they sell, they sell everything. They sell it. I mean, what, you know, why would they bother? Um, but it's just that what the Cubs have always done, we're going to go out and be competitive and not put winning first. Yeah. Un- unlike our friends in Houston, unlike our friends in Los Angeles, who they want to be competitive at the top end of competitive, not in the mid level of competitive or the lower end of competitive. And I think, I mean, those words as silly as it is to maybe choose such highfalutin ones i picked them carefully because that's exactly how i feel about it that watching sean murphy get traded to the braves this week for very very little a price the cubs easily could have beaten in prospect capital and should have and watching not only that happen but in the process of that transaction the brewers get their hands on wilson Contreras's younger brother for an ex- absurdly low cost. Yeah, how surprising was that trade? And who who came out? I mean, you have to say Milwaukee came out on top, right? Yes, but Milwaukee. How that, go ahead. How did that happen? How did that trade happen? You know, I've only read a little bit about it. Even I grow semi-aneurysmatic trying to handle some of this stuff. Is that a uh, word? Let, let me grab my funk and wagnalls just a second. Yeah, wait. <laughs> But as near I can tell, the A's, who have gone a little bit off the deep end as a franchise in their own right, really fell in love with Estuary Ruiz, an outfielder that the Brewers got in the Josh Hader trade back in the summer. And so it helped the Braves a lot to get across the finish line of the Murphy deal to get Ruiz from Milwaukee. But Milwaukee realized that they had all the leverage in that situation and got Atlanta to give them Contreras, who is probably the second best player in this trade overall. And then they Hmm. got an extra pitching arm from each of the other organizations involved. And all they gave up was this outfield prospect. Uh, So it's just a matter of two teams were trying to do a trade one really, really liked a guy on an on a third roster. And so that team benefited from the buyer going to them and, and needing them badly to sort of facilitate the whole thing. Um, in a way, in a small way, that is the Brewers getting lucky. But I think in a more important way, it signifies something that's been going on for years for the Cubs, which is that the Cubs never get those opportunities. And it's not because they never have farm depth, although we'd love if they had more consistent farm depth. It's because Hoyer, and even before him, the latter stages of Epstein, they were not aggressive enough, not proactive enough in the trade market. Forget free agency. Free agency, that, that can be and often is an ownership problem. The trade market, you've got to be you got to be making enough calls. You've got to be aware enough of where there might be an opportunity that you jump on it and you get that guy that no one else is quite sure is available or certainly wasn't a, they weren't aware they were available for that price. And instead, not only did the Cubs not do that, 
but the Brewers and Cardinals do it all the time. It's a huge, huge obstacle to winning. Uh, if you want to look forward from here, whether the Cubs sign all the free agents they want or not, to get past the Brewers and then past the Cardinals and back to the head of the NL Central, they're going to have to start getting some of that right if for no other reasons than so those two teams can't continue to collect talent that they're not paying a significant enough price for. Is there an inner circle of GMs that we're not a part of? <laughs> because you know these players were somehow available. Did we just not, as this trade was coming together and potential partners were, you know, being considered, did we just not know about it because we're not on the inside Cubs brass? Is that possible? I mean, is that how that could work? <laughs> so he's at the, he's at the geeks table in the lunchroom. Is that what you're saying? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, it's not, it's obviously not exactly like that. But it's not entirely not like that either. Yeah, I, I mean, GMs run in different circles and some guys might have connections to certain others and not have a, a natural connection to some other, you know, executive. And so that has to just be maybe the early texts between a couple of GMs who don't really know each other very well are just a little more awkward than if they happen to both go to Yale roughly the same year or something like that. Or if they both happen to work in the Cleveland system in 2014, mm. you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. But to me, it seems at this point, at least, it seems more dispositional than anything. Like uh, the A's GM, David Forst and Alex Anthopoulos in Atlanta, they don't share a background exactly. It's just that Anthopoulos is extremely aggressive, forced and the A's as a franchise are extremely idiosyncratic in this way where they like who they like and they don't like who they don't like. And it, it stands out a bit from the rest of the league, but you know, they get into a conversation with Anthopolis and Anthopolis is being very aggressive because that's what he does. That's why the Braves have signed half their team to extensions and keep surprising people by trading for really good players like Matt Olson last winter and Sean Murphy this winter. And when Forrest asks Anthopoulos for a player who's not on his team, instead of that freezing out negotiations the way it absolutely would if he made that same request to Jed Hoyer, Anthopoulos says, well, let me put you on hold. And then he goes and talks to the Brewers, who also, by the way, are one of those proactive teams who, mm. if something comes across their radar, they want to explore it to the fullest. Uh, they just had a, a nominal change in leadership from David Stearns to Matt Arnold. But both of those guys tick in kind of the same way. They, they are proactive. They want to make the move before they are cornered, before there's nothing else to do except make the move. And be, by being that step ahead, they're also just doing more. They're turning over a little more. And that can be frustrating to fans who prefer a, a steady core. You know, obviously the Josh Hader trade took a lot of even the team by surprise last summer. But look, making the Josh Hader trade just netted them very quickly, uh, William Contreras. Yeah. And they got more in that deal, too. So I, those are the kinds of things that the Cubs have got to start doing. 
maybe Jed Hoyer can turn that back on at some point. It's not something he's, you know, when he worked in San Diego, when he briefly had the reins there to himself before coming back under Theo's umbrella, he showed that kind of initiative, but it, it hasn't reemerged as he's become the head of operations since Theo left here in Chicago. And unless that changes, he's not going to be good enough at this job. Yeah, well, he doesn't appear to be. It's it's like he's sitting in the on, on the sidelines of the dance and waiting for somebody to ask him, and it's just not going to happen. You ain't that good looking, Judd. <laughs> he is a handsome man. That actually, I don't think is the problem. <laughs> of all the complaints we can lodge. <laughs> By the way, uh, I read this week the name, and I've already forgotten it, of the Cubs general manager. Um, it's like it's cookie or something like that and then what's it carter hawkins there it is yeah um yeah i didn't even know i, I what does he do he uh Doesn't... hides in the shadows and occasionally creeps out and and says whatever jed tells him to say so he is uh, the ugly one that's not getting asked to dance there's a yeah i mean it's a a lot like the vibe between theo and jed it's now Jed and Carter. Although I think Carter's even more a true subordinate to Jed than Jed was to Theo. Um, but he's, you know, he's on the phone with teams. I don't know. I don't have a sense yet for what he does well and poorly. I don't think anybody really does. And that's almost been by design. The organization has not at all pushed him out front and tried to give us an impression of of who he is exactly. I think they want him to be able to work in secret a little bit, but so far that hasn't come to much. Hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's just a recurring nightmare that I've had since I was, you know, seven or whatever. And then started kind of fell for the Cubs. Yeah. And then I passed that disease on to my son. <laughs> well, that's, that's how, most genetic illnesses work. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's the situation we're in. Uh, Bogarts is gone. He signed just after we recorded last week. Mm-hmm. Carlos Correa is gone. Christian Vasquez is gone. And some of the pitching targets that some people had dreamed on, although I think as we talked about last week, we didn't necessarily expect them to go big on guys like Kodai Senga or Chris Bassett. Those guys have signed now, though. So the Cubs, again, that cornering is happening. Uh, unlike the Brewers, Jed is waiting, and, and now he is, if he wants to get an impact position player, he has one more avenue to do it. It's Dansby Swanson. Um, so we're at that moment of truth. Okay, I, <laughs> and we're going to get stuck with this guy, so I'm going to be stuck with this guy for however long we have him. So it, it, is it me? It must be me. I, I don't doubt that it's me, but I don't see him as an impact player. Yeah, I mean, well. The uh, the Braves won the World Series a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. And was, was their big stud Dansby Swanson? No, it was Freddie Freeman. Um, was their second big stud Dansby Swanson? Yeah. Yeah, it, it honestly kind of was, at least in the playoffs. Um I would say, I mean, we, we talked about it and I have said it several times that I viewed him as the fourth best of these four 
elite shortstops. And Jesse Rogers was on the radio, the ESPN affiliate in Chicago earlier today. So wait, the and, fourth best, so he's Shemp. <laughs> Can I call him that? <laughs> well, we're piling up a lot of nicknames for a guy who's not even a cub yet. But... <laughs> yeah, true. Kuda's boy, Shemp, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> uh, Jesse Rogers said he thinks that even the Cubs view him as the fourth best of the group. That's not necessarily an insult when th- it's this group of four. And I would say that he lacks either the extraordinary standout skill of a guy like Trey Turner, whose speed is is bonkers, right? He lacks the exceptional well-roundedness, like the you can't find a spot where he's below average at all that Carlos Correa has. But there has always been something about Dansby Swanson that people did pick up on. This is a guy who won the national championship for Vanderbilt and the same night was drafted first overall by the Arizona Diamondbacks. He does. I've been digging into his numbers and here's what I can tell you. He makes really, really good swing decisions given his skill set, and specifically his swing. He has found excellent approach for who he is and he's honed it very carefully he's a smart uh, fierce ball player and a really good athlete runs fast his defense has actually improved over the last couple of years as he's gone into his mid and toward his late 20s which isn't typical normally you're kind of the best defender you're going to be when you come into the league these days he's still improving those things because he pays attention to those details People do view him as a leader and there's a, there's an offensive dynamism to him because he doesn't expand his zone, but he's extremely aggressive within his zone. He has a swing that is designed to crush fastballs and he does that. And if you just map his batted ball, you know, his spray chart from where he has been playing to Wrigley field, he'd probably be, like a a border case to crack 30 homers which is cool 30 homers from a shortstop yeah great take it every day this is a guy who runs well i think and so one problem that i've had whenever i've been trying to draw up lineups for this team for the coming year is that they don't have anyone right now that i think of as a leadoff hitter and one reason why i didn't want swanson much at all for a while is that i didn't view him as any more of a leadoff hitter than any of the others, just because he doesn't walk all that much. But one, again, he's this guy who crushes fastballs. Sometimes it's nice to just put a guy like that at the top of the order where starting the game off, your opposing pitcher kind of wants to get comfortable with his heat. So he might get that pitch to hit early in the count. Uh, Two, really good athlete and runs a decent on-base percentage overall. It's just more driven by batting average than most guys might be. Um, And then I think just from an attitude and approach perspective, he might be well-suited to that. So I'm coming around on him just because I think there's a, 
a level of impact that he has by being really good at what he's good at and willing to work on the things that he's not good at. The one big drawback is that his big drawback is an important one. He swings and misses too much. And so I said he makes really good swing decisions. He has to because he has to overcome the fact that kind of out on the edges of the zone, he swings and misses a lot. When he expands his zone, he swings and misses a whole lot. And he doesn't do all that well with breaking balls. So he's got to trap pitchers. He's got to get that fastball in a good part of the plate. And that's when he does his damage. That's a major weakness. Um, But if you only have one flaw in your game like that, then there are a lot worse things. You know, he he might be the fourth best shortstop in this class, but the seventh or eighth best in baseball. That's still a really good thing to have. He's young. And so, yeah, I think he'd be an impact addition to the team. It's just ever so slightly underwhelming. And again, that this all assumes that they actually get that done because it's not like there's no competition left for him now that Carlos Correa is signed with the Giants. So who's in now on Dan's beat besides the Cubs and the Twins or no? Yeah, the Twins a bit. Um, he fits their the sort of offensive profile I just sketched out for him fits what the Twins like in hitters really nicely. So I think they'd be okay with pivoting to him, but I don't think they're willing to go as far monetarily as the Cubs will be willing to go. So I wouldn't view that as a major threat. Uh, the Dodgers and the Braves would be interested, but probably only on shorter term deals. Mm. So I think if the Cubs in this case are willing to stretch out to that, I don't know what it's going to end up being, but seven or eight years that they can get him done. They only have competition. If Jed keeps kind of bargain shopping, which is the privilege he's denied himself by letting it get this far. You know, at this point, you don't get to bargain shop. There's one guy left. You got to grab that thing and get to the cash register with it. So in there, you said that uh, you've come around on him. Is, are, have you come around like me? Because, you know, what, what are our other options? Um, and maybe my other thought on this is that does, does Jed uh, know more than we do? And is he actually in a rebuild? And he's not going to even sign uh, Swansby. He's going to end up – is there somebody that's coming to free agency next year that he's got his eye on? Or is there somebody coming along in the system that uh, they think is going to be Swansby-esque? Um, I, I just, uh, again, uh, griping that the Cubs limp in, but they're limping into the season. Even if they bring in Swansby, they're limping in. And it's it's as frustrating as it was in 1977. There's nobody close enough that he should be planning around that, like a prospect who's going to fill that fill a similar similar role anytime soon. Yeah. Um, no, no, no it, within the system, you mean? Right. Uh, free agents next year. I mean, it. It's kind of Rafael Davers, the third baseman from Boston, uh, Manny Machado, who can opt out out in San Diego, and Shohei Otani, all of whom are perfectly good targets. They're going to run into the exact same problem with those three that they ran into with all the big shortstop targets this winter, which is they're going to get scared off by the the price tag. 
Right. I mean, that's clearly what happened with Correa is that the market went way further than the Cubs anticipated and they never got serious at that level. So there, it would make no sense to sit and wait to do the exact same thing again in 12 months. Um, so I hope that that's not what they're doing. Certainly the business side of the Cubs organization has seemingly been leaking information, trying to put more pressure on Jed to spend, which underscores that this is not really primarily a Jed problem. He's working under some really stupid and bad constraints um, of just, I, I'm not sure that it, it stays consistent enough what he's being told by ownership. And then they're not effectively supporting him or setting him up to succeed at executing whatever plan they, they do have for him. Um, but no, I would say, I would say he still thinks they need to make additions. Um, and even ones that are relatively focused on getting back to a competitive stance for 2023. I'm just not sure if he, I'm not sure if he's willing to go the extra mile to get Swanson as part of that, because he tends to view these things as is this particular transaction a net value win for me or not? Well, I, I, it's, (laughs) he needs to come out with something. I don't know. Maybe they don't. They, they, it just seems like if they said, okay, here's what we're doing, guys. And then we could say, oh, okay, great. What do you, that's, we understand. That's what you're doing. But they do nothing or they do uh, this little bit that they've done. Um, and everybody gets excited about Cody Bellinger. Great. He was great three years ago, whatever. He's not been great lately. So this is just a, uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a poster. It's just something that, we can say, hey, look what we did, and it's nothing. Right. Yeah. It could be a big nothing. Exactly. Yeah. And if it's a big something, great. But you need to do to, for fans like us, it seems like they need to do something that's going to make us go, yeah, that's what. Here it is. Something that is beyond just limping into the season like we're apparently doing. Yeah. Carlos got signed through – I mean, he is – his contract is through his age 41 season. Is that right? Uh, yes. Wow. Yeah, 13 years. Wow. Yeah, it's uh... – <coughs> sorry. Um, it is kind of in the pattern of this offseason that a lot of teams are trying to stretch out these deals rather than not giving the extra year. They almost prefer to give the extra year. They they want to shove the extra year onto a player sometimes because it's helping them with the annual average value of the contract. Right, right. That, you know, it helps them manipulate the luxury tax. So I think that's really all that's about. Although also, when you're in a certain level of marketplace, you sometimes have to bid the extra year to get that total up so that your bid is really above the next guy's, you know, Um and Correa, even last year's deal that he signed with the Twins reflected a, a certain competitiveness with the market. He wanted to be the highest paid infielder in baseball just for that one year before he opted out. This year, he won't be the highest paid infielder in baseball by AAV, but he got a long enough deal that he got more money than Francisco Lindor got from the Mets. 
He got more money than Tatis got from the Padres. He got, you know, in terms of raw guarantee, and he ties the longest ever free agent deal uh, with Bryce Harper. So some of that is also a, a status thing where you want to meet those points so that the, the player feels like you're acknowledging their status in the, in the market. Well, the Cubs don't, don't uh, let them acknowledge that status. They don't, uh, God forbid we'd be the people standing behind him when he announces his 13 year deal. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be standing behind, uh, oh, shoot, I don't have my list, uh, some 36 year old second baseman. When if it were only the shortstops that this was happening with, that'd be one thing. But losing out on Christian Vasquez uh, to the and Twins. And the, the, the Astros first baseman guy. What's his name? Jose Abreu. Yeah. yeah. It all kind of leaves them in the lurch because, you know, adding Swanson, even if you have come around to the idea that that would be a positive addition and, and make a difference to this team, they still need one more difference maker. They need, you know, they don't have the other half of their catching equation solved yet. They don't have the extra bat to lengthen out the lineup. Right. Um, so now, you know, there's, there's one guy left on the board who makes a real big difference. And you need two more players to make at least a, a decent sized difference just to get that part of the team right. Um, so, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how things go. For now, we can move on to uh, other subjects. And yeah, I got one real quick. This is our ninth, our ninth uh, podcast, correct? Yes. So you know me and my uniform numbers. Um, Cub number nine, most recent is, of course, you know, was an old favorite of all of ours, who's now a tiger for some reason. Um, but Cubs who wore number nine, there seems to be a, a, a thing with catchers and number nine, at least on the Cubs. Um Gabby Hartnett, uh, Randy Hundley, Todd Hundley, Steve Swisher, Tim Blackwell, Damon Berryhill, Scott Service, Benito Santiago, Paul Baco, Henry Blanco, uh, on and on and on. Um, so, number nine. Number uh, nine. Number nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Santiago was a cub. That's right. For 15 yeah, minutes, yeah. Yeah. It, it was like one of those one full season, and that was it. Just, yep. just a free agent visit and then back on his way. Uh, I think that was 99, maybe. I have it here. Uh, 99, correct. Yeah. Yeah, the Cubs could probably trade for Baez relatively cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come yeah. on back. Yeah. It's, uh, it, that actually has been thrown out there, I think, just by people desperate to. Really? to ponder rumors but (laughs) yeah desperate for something i I, i'll tell you what it's not happening but it's uh fun to think about just first of all how even after the rough year he just had five years and 120 million dollars doesn't sound like such a daunting contract doesn't sound too bad no no and uh secondly that you probably either get detroit to pay that down somewhat or they'd have to attach a prospect to Baez for you to take it on. And wow. that's like, yeah. Well, Which hey, is... we're, we're shooting for competitive. So if we're competitive in mid-July, maybe they'll trade again. <laughs> yeah. Aim small, uh, miss small. Yeah. 
Well, we were going to do some Hall of Fame talk, but I think best to keep it short this week. We're a, a man down, and uh, even those of us here aren't necessarily whole. So we can wait on that a little bit. And uh, real quickly, before I give you guys the random cub of the week, Tom, let's talk World Cup. Oh, I, you know, I'm surprised. At, I'm extreme fair weather uh, soccer fan. In fact, I only follow it every four years. Uh, I don't even have like a favorite mega team, uh, you know, Manchester United or whatever. But I found myself just enthralled by this World Cup. Um, you got the Cinderella stories and you have the powerhouses. And now what, what a final. I mean, Argentina versus France. Clash of the Titans. Yeah, exactly that. And I, I like the way you put it, that there were the Cinderella stories and then the powerhouses. That's what I found very satisfying about it. Like you, I mean, even to a greater extent than you, I had not really been a soccer fan despite a couple of attempts to pick it up until this cup. But it has hooked me gorgeously. And the main way is, that it's really followed the pattern of what I think are the best March Madness tournaments. My favorite years for the NCAA, back when I followed that closely, which I really don't anymore, uh, but back when I did, it was lots of early upsets. Give me the 14 over the three and a couple of 11 seeds beating six seeds on late buzzer beaters. And the joy of that for these teams who, play in like the hills of Vermont and only made it because they won their tiny little conferences tournament, let them get a win. But I don't necessarily need to see them go all the way through to the final four. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. then I Let's also want to see the best teams prove that they're the best teams by surviving the early challenges from those spirited underdogs and then winning the slugfest against other great teams to get to the championship. And that's exactly the pattern that this cup has followed. Well, I don't know what, how, what impact this will have, but next round, you know, four years from now or three and a half years from now, they uh, increase the number of teams by 50%. So we're going, what are we at now? 32 teams. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to 48. Wow. Yeah. I believe that's true. Yeah. What little so, I know of the world cup. Yes. Maybe Italy will actually make it this time. <laughs> Sorry, Italy. I'm still shocked that they're not, you know, Wales is in and they're not. But, you know, with 48, you could see Wales, Scotland, and England, and perhaps even Northern Ireland will have their team. So um, it's interesting. In fact, they're still trying to figure out what the brackets will look like. They've got time to do that. But, uh, sure. yeah, I read a piece on, okay, we got 48. Well, how are we going to manage this? But, uh yeah, I I can't wait till what is that uh, f uh, Saturday? I think right is the final uh, Sunday 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 morning. Yes, yeah, Saturday is yeah. a consolation third place game, which right. is interesting. I, I it's okay that they play it. It's just kind of a meaningless game. But um, and, is and there, I was going to ask: Is there some kind of like does the winner of the third place game get automatic entry into the next cup or something? You know, I don't know. I, I, I've not heard anything like that um, because I think the only automatic entry is uh, host nations. Right. Right. So I, I don't think in this, not like they're giving out bronze medals or anything like the Olympics, no. uh, but you know, why not? 
why not? Um, it gives an extra day for the uh, the finalists to rest up, and you know, let's have one more game. They get really big participation ribbons, <laughs> comically large. Yeah, they, <laughs> they pin them onto their jersey, and the player just topples over. <laughs> well, that I'd watch. I, so I, have, I started a World Cup rumor that I'm hoping to, to perpetuate. So uh, another backhanded shout out to Ben and Steve and whoever else might be listening. Uh, Matt's Cardinal, much hated Cardinal fan friend. Um, Judd was watching the World Cup uh, and and then all of a sudden noticed that Carlos Correa had signed with with the Giants and, and missed out. He was He was distracted by soccer. Wow. Because he wasn't doing his job. Yeah. yeah. Let's spread that one. I like yeah. that one. Yeah. yeah. That happened. So It did. It did yeah. happen. Yeah. Sad but true. I have uh, I've loved just learning some of the nuances of the game that I didn't know. Um, for one thing, you only get five substitutions during the game. And they can only happen during not necessarily like predetermined windows, but if you use a moment to make one substitution. Well, now you still have four players you can substitute, but you only have two more opportunities to do so. Um, I like these little rules limiting the way you can sub people out. It's akin to in baseball, the obviously it's just like in soccer, there is no, uh, no re-entry, you know? Right. Yeah. Single substitution. But Soccer has this extra layer because unlike a baseball game, a soccer game can be so exhausting that a perfectly good player, it might make sense to bring them on at the 60th or the 65th minute as fresh legs. And it also sort of governs the way you play the whole game. Then is, you know, you got this guy out there and you want him out there the whole time. Well, you need to minimize his defensive responsibilities then so that he can, conserve some energy and be ready for the big runs where you're going to try to score your score your goals and stay out there all the way through the 90th minute and maybe the 105th or the 120th if that's the way the match is going um that's a fun challenge for a coach staff to navigate and to be thinking through as a fan too and wondering okay why did they why did they not contest that ball as fiercely as i might have had the instinct to do well, some of it is is constantly managing the flow and the energy of the game. I've been thinking more about how baseball can mimic that, not that it has to, you know, but just that I like that about it. And then I'm I'm thinking, you know, sort of porting that over to the sport that I follow more closely. And I guess it's just different because in baseball you're playing every day, and that's why we've seen guys get more and more days off uh more days off than they used to, you know, taking just a day to rest. Um, if you're playing 14 in a row, a guy might just take a day off after a night game, even if he's normally in there every day, that kind of stuff. But right. um, it's made me wonder if teams could be more creative about mid game switches times when, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this guy, I can just get him off his feet for four innings. And I've, got this other player who you know it used to be that there's a big penalty sort of that went with pinch hitting guys always hit worse as pinch hitters because they come off the bench cold 
but in the facilities that teams have nowadays, they can be under underneath hitting in a really good, you know, simulacrum of game action in the tunnel, uh, in these gorgeous cages and stuff and staying loose with state of the art equipment, watching video, maybe pinch hit guys more often because maybe that guy's got just a little more left in his swing than the guy who's been standing around for seven innings playing a tough shortstop, you know, those kinds of things. 95 degrees. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun looking forward to the end of it. Um, and then I'll, I'll try and see if I can, you know what listeners, here's my challenge to any listeners. If you've got a favorite football club in Europe somewhere, or even if it's just an MLS team, I'll certainly try to follow our local Minnesota FC this year. But if you've got a favorite team, throw it out to me. I'll, I'll happily adopt somebody's team and just follow my, let my fandom be led that way. Um, anyway, as long as they're not in St. Louis, <laughs> they just got actually a new MLS team and they're very excited about it. So I don't know, might hear from some people. Let's uh, close with our, our special stuff. You want me to do the random cub first or what? Oh yeah. 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 Let's do I, it. And I'm ready, Todd. Head to so, head, Tom. Head to head. Mono Mono. Here we go. Okay. All right. Larry Bittner. <laughs> this 19th Larry century Bittner. player. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought about whether I could somehow give a sufficiently uh misleading collection of, of data that it would be Larry Bittner, but you'd never guess it was Larry uh, <laughs> I actually think you probably do that pretty easily. <laughs> but then I thought right away you would shout Larry Bittner, not knowing anything. <laughs> so I saw yeah, you coming. True. All right. This guy pitched for the Cubs from 1986 to 1988. He was a lefty. He made 79 starts and went 28 and 34 with a 4.42 ERA and 490 innings pitched. Okay. So that's that's a fair amount of pitching. Uh, 490 wow. innings over what, three years, you said? Three years, yep. Okay. Those were the Eckersley-Sutcliffe made- years, right? Yeah. Yeah. He also made six relief appearances. Uh, he wasn't fully established as a rotation member per se, but he was generally viewed as a starter. Um, was Steve Trout a lefty? He was, but that was post-Steve Trout, I believe. Oh, okay. He, Steve Meets- Trout was on the roster with this guy, at least for the first year or two. Trout was uh, in 84, too, so... Yeah, yeah. but he was gone before 88, I believe. It's not Steve Trout, I can tell you that. Okay. Okay. Uh, Maddox came along. It's not Maddox, obviously, but he was pitching then, and it's not Trout, and it's... uh, Okay. Yeah, that's... He was a Cubs draftee in 1984, so pretty quick to the big leagues. They traded him in December of 88 at the winter meetings. 
this it's a significant name? Yeah. Oh, I know who this is. Um, this is the the guy who was the old guy. The guy who became like one of the oldest pitchers in baseball history. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it not, Matt? It is. J- yeah. It's Jamie Moyer. Yeah. Oh, right. dang it, Todd. Sorry. <laughs> you're, Todd, you're like eight for nine. <laughs> no, you got it. I, just, I wouldn't have gotten that without without that info. Uh, in fact, why, how the hell did that even happen? I got the name this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He played for half the league, but uh, he came up as a Cub. Yep. And it was a boy, that was a deeply regrettable trade that they sent Moyer and Rafael Palmero in a oh my. Nine yeah. deal to Texas. Yes. See, that's the cup. That's the trades that the Cubs do. Yeah. Let's get rid the, of some uh, good guys and bring in a backup catcher. Well, they got six players back for him, and a couple <laughs> of them were actually meaningful. You know, I say contributors, but it's like one of them was Mitch Williams. Well, so, okay, he was an important yeah. part of the division-winning Cubs. Did he advance them toward that division title, or did he make it harder and, you know, yeah, and bring unless... all the deads of more uh, middle-aged Cubs fans along the way? But Yeah, no kidding. What's funny about uh, Palmero is he was just like a punch-and-judy hitter. I think he hit for high average. He might have hit. 300 a couple times for the Cubs, but he'd have like, you know, seven home runs. Yeah. And I don't think it was immediately afterwards, but his power just kept, well, of course there's other things going on probably, you know, that was the era, but still yeah. that's the guy ended up with what? 600 home runs. 550 mm. somewhere in there. Yeah. Over 500 anyway. I don't remember the exact number for him. Huh. But. Uh. Well, good work, Tom. We're we're giving that one to you. I, I just really for some reason remember wow. the name. I don't know how that happened. I started out with Rich Rich Hill, so I came back to Moyer because I mean I, Hill is old. I think Rich Moyer's Hill really pitched old. back in nineteen eighty six. Probably <laughs> we did, but it was for his middle school. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, let's see, Dad. You've got tips for us. Uh, quick and easy. Um, uh, this time of year, obviously, we're moved. It's holiday season, and trees are wonderful things. And it's pretty easy to do a holiday lighting uh, setup with trees. Just place a uh, colored or not colored spotlight at the base of the tree, shooting up through the tree, and it kind of lights the inside of the tree. It works really well, especially with evergreens. But it gives you some holiday cheer uh, without having to go all out uh, into a lot of multicolored lights and uh, wrapping branches and all that stuff. It's quick and easy. Just uh, uh, plug in a spotlight, place it at the bottom of the tree, and light upward. Quick and easy is how I like to do the decorating. There you go. I wonder how many people have indoor, formerly living, I guess you could say, ex-organic trees anymore. Uh, actually, quite a bit. Yeah, that's yeah? still okay. still a thing. Uh, strangely, Margie and I went away from that. We used to have live trees all the time uh, for probably Matt's whole childhood, I believe. Um, and then recently, we and this is probably my fault got um, just went to something that's a little easier to do. 
Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a bit of an ordeal. And I'll tell you what, uh, cutting down, you know, go out to the tree farm and cut down your own tree. It's getting a little pricey. But yeah. is it? Is it? What's it take you back? Like 50? Higher. More really? Wow. Yes. Something in the 70 to 75 range if you're for the the nicer, you know, easier to to rig trees and all of that, you know. Yep. But it's a it's a fun experience. There's little extras thrown in, you know. And, and, and it, I think, but not everyone agrees. So a bonus old man slash old horticulturist trip tip, sorry. Um go with fir trees, not spruce trees, uh when you're doing cut trees for indoor use. Um Spruce trees will tear the crap out of your arms when you're trying to light those things. Wow. You know, and like, furs are much softer and more expensive. <laughs> more expensive and more uh, just easier to get along with. Was that Marky? It was, yes. Okay. All right. Hi, Marky. Um, thank you for that, Todd. Uh, I w- I'm going to mention uh, Baseball Attendance by Team. It's kind of interesting if you look at the records, every team's highest attendance per year, um, some interesting things come out. First of all, four teams have reached 4 million. Uh, In the interest of moving things along, I'll just tell you what they are. But it's kind of interesting because I would have guessed wrong. It's the Blue Jays, the Rockies, and then the two New York teams, the Yankees and the Mm. Mets. No Dodgers. Dodgers were the first to three. Um, it's interesting too, if you look at the year that these were set, there's a spate of records in the nineties and then a spate, uh, maybe 10 to 15 years ago. Um, of course they build ballparks. They tend to be smaller than the ones they replace. That tends to be kind of a trend. So there's, there aren't too many recent team records for attendance. Uh, the Dodgers, didn't quite make it to 4 million, but in 2019, they set their team record. Uh, but by far the oldest team record for attendance, and see if you remember this, Todd, who, who were the two National League teams in the 70s who drew the most fans? You had the Dodgers, and then what's the other National League team? Mm. Yeah, you'd, I would fall to the Mets, but uh, actually I'd probably say Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati always had 2 million, which was a big deal in the 70s. Their their record is still uh, 1976, 2.6 million, huh. which is one of the lowest totals for a team record for um, att- uh, attendance in a year. And at that god-awful ballpark. Yeah, uh, which, a, river, you know, the riverfront, river. riverfront, and then probably <laughs> Synergy when you guys saw it, right? That's right. I thought we saw Riverfront, didn't we, Matt? No, no, no. Yeah, Synergy is the awful. Oh, oh yeah, name yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, then. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what is it now? Oh, the Great American, Great American Ballpark, which is a brilliant corporate name. You don't even realize it's a corporate name unless you're paying attention. That's how they should all be done. Hmm. I didn't know it was a corporate name. Yeah, like Great American. See, there you insurance go. Company like Wrigley, like Wrigley. Yeah, yeah. chew that gum. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, it's easy to see how it, to top four million, you've got to have one of those ballparks that lets you throw in sixty eight thousand on the Fourth of July and stuff. You know, like that's yeah. The Rockies right. are there because they played 
in Mile High Stadium the first couple of years. So, yeah, it was a football stadium, and they would put football crowds in there. Uh, and then, you know, there was also just the enthusiasm of an expansion team. Uh, even well, 80,000 uh, for opening day in 93, uh, yeah. the year they set their record. Yeah. Right. It's uh, it, it is funny. Some of the, especially, I think it was a game in the 48 series, Cleveland against Boston. Um, they had a game at municipal stadium in Cleveland where the attendance was like 91,000. Oh, geez. And I, I just think back, first of all, some of those fans had awesome seats because they weren't seats at all. You just stood behind a, a rope on the warning track. Uh, <laughs> that was that was a reasonably common thing back then, especially for big games. When they had an overflow crowd, they actually let the crowd overflow onto the field. And it uh-huh. was just if it got hit on a bounce past the rope, it was a ground rule double. Uh, but I think often about whatever that stadium looked like, the the person with the worst seat in that crowd of ninety thousand, it had to be like you might as well have watched it by telegraph, but, <laughs> but you were there. Yeah. <laughs> well, the 59 world series, we, they had um, crowds of 90,000 in the uh, Coliseum. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the LA Coliseum with it's like 214 foot left field uh, because it was, it was not a stadium that was made for baseball in any way. And it was, it was narrow, you know, even for a football game, the the stands would encroach pretty close to the sidelines. So you had like it was like 220 feet down the left field line. So they just put up this like 40 foot screen that you had to hit it over. Uh, yeah, some some of the things that they used to do that you couldn't imagine being considered legitimate now, but it was you know they had what they had and they were going to do with it what they could do. I mean. That building is still still exists, doesn't it? The Coliseum. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the UCLA place there. Oh, they do. Okay. Is that where the Rose? No, that's not where the Rose Bowl is, is it? No, the Rose Bowl is played at the Rose Bowl. The... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it must be getting late. <laughs> Actually, maybe it's USC. I can't remember which one plays there, but yeah. Anyway, one of them. One of them still plays there, I believe. So, Matt, well, quick question. Did uh, Sorkin and Lincoln stay up through the whole uh, last cast and uh, hear their shout-out? Or did you fast-forward for them? No, they uh, they still enjoy the podcast, but <laughs> they've lately turned more toward Harry Potter audiobooks, which <laughs> I'm fine with. I, I'm not as big a fan as some people are of uh, Jim Day, the guy who reads the official Harry Potter audiobooks. But I'm fine with it. What I'm not quite as fine with is this new thing that they've figured out, which is that their little Echo Dot will have Alexa read them Harry Potter books in that monotone computer voice. Oh, wow. Just uh, nonstop. And ugh. it'll mispronounce words. And it and I, ugh, I, can't, I can't really handle it. But they seem to like it. So good on them. Shout out to Sorkin and Lincoln if they get this far into this episode. Hey, guys. Yep. Love you, boys. All right. 
And well, shout that's... out to Margie who's listening and, and uh, uh, has always kind of listened in um, and occasionally will send me a text to be nice when I'm going off on a Cornish left fielder or Swans be dancing or whoever it might be. So. Wow. Can you imagine if we didn't have the you know modifying effect of Margie? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Think how bad it could get. <laughs> Let us dare not even imagine. Well, <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week. We'll have the full crew here. And hopefully we'll be celebrating the Cubs salvaging their offseason. If they haven't done so, boy, it's going to get really dark. But in an entertaining way, I, I'm pretty we sure. We promise. Yeah. Uh, if you've ever wanted to listen to the sound of a man's <laughs> blood vessels just popping uh, tune in next week for DJ Fox if the Cubs don't sign anyone between now and then. Oh, it, it, that could get really ugly. <laughs> and either way, we are This Is Not A Rebuild. You can follow us on Twitter at Not A Rebuild. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, let us know what we can do better. Let us know what you're enjoying. And we'll be in touch. Bye-bye.